Section two of Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Deborah Lynn. Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. Part one, chapter two. James sets out. Miss Margaret Goodwin's narrative continued. Those August days. Have there been any like them before? I realize with difficulty that the future holds in store for me others as golden. The island was crammed with trippers. They streamed in by every boat. But James and I were infinitely alone. I loved him from the first, from the moment when he had rowed out of the unknown into my life, clad in a dressing-gown. I like to think that he loved me from that moment, too. But if he did, the knowledge that he did came to him only after a certain delay. It was my privilege to watch this knowledge steal gradually but surely upon him. We were always together, and as the days passed by he spoke freely of himself and his affairs, obeying unconsciously the rudder of my tactful inquisitiveness. By the end of the first week I knew as much about him as he did himself. It seemed that a guardian, an impersonal sort of business man with a small but impossible family, was the most commanding figure in his private life. As for his finances, five and forty sovereigns, the remnant of a larger sum which had paid for his education at Cambridge, stood between him and the necessity of offering for hire a sketchy acquaintance with general literature and a third class in the classical tripos. He had come to Guernsey to learn by personal observation what chances tomato-growing held out to a young man in a hurry to get rich. "'Tomato-growing?' I echoed dubiously, and then, to hide a sense of bathos, "'People have made it pay. Of course they work very hard.' "'Yes,' said James, without much enthusiasm. "'But I fancy,' I added, "'the life is not at all unpleasant.' At this point embarrassment seemed to engulf James. He blushed, swallowed once or twice in a somewhat convulsive manner, and stammered. Then he made his confession guiltily. I was not to suppose that his aims ceased with the attainment of a tomato-farm. The nurture of a wholesome vegetable occupied neither the whole of his ambitions nor even the greater part of them. To write, the agony with which he throatily confessed it, to be swept into the maelstrom of literary journalism, to be en rapport with the unslumbering forces of Fleet Street, those were the real objectives of James Orlebar Cloister. "'Of course, I mean,' he said, "'I suppose it would be a bit of a struggle at first, if you see what I mean. What I mean to say is rejected manuscripts and so on. But still, after a bit, once get a footing, you know, I should like to have a dash at it. I mean, I think I could do something, you know.' "'Of course you could,' I said. "'I mean, lots of men have, don't you know?' "'There's plenty of room at the top,' I said. He seemed struck with this remark. It encouraged him. He had had his opportunity of talking thus of himself during our long rambles out of doors. They were a series of excursions which he was accustomed to describe as hunting expeditions for the stocking of our larder. Thus James would announce at breakfast that prawns were the day's quarry, and the foreshore round Cobo Bay the hunting-ground. And to Cobo, accordingly, we would set out. This prawn-yielding area extends along the coast on the other side of St. Peter's Port, where two halts had to be made, one at Madame Garnier's, the confectioner's, the other at the library, to get fiction which I never read. Then came a journey on the top of the antediluvian horse-tram, a sort of diligence on rails, and then a whole summer's afternoon among the prawns. Cobo is an expanse of shingle dotted with seaweed and rocks. 
and Guernsey is a place where one can take off one's shoes and stockings on the slightest pretext. We waded hither and thither with the warm brine lapping unchecked over our bare legs. We did not use our nets very industriously, it is true, but our tongues were seldom still. The slow walk home was a thing to be looked forward to. Ah, those memorable homecomings in the quiet solemnity of that hour, when a weary sun stoops, one can fancy with a sigh of pleasure to sink into the bosom of the sea. Prawn-hunting was agreeably varied by fish-snaring, mussel-stalking, and mushroom-trapping, sports which James, in his capacity of head forester, included in his venery. For mushroom-trapping an early start had to be made, usually between six and seven. The chase took us inland until, after walking through the fragrant earthy lanes, we turned aside into dewy meadows, where each blade of grass sparkled with a gem of purest water. Again the necessity of going barefoot. Breakfast was laid on these mornings, my mother whiling away the hours of waiting with a volume of Diogenes Laertius in the bow-window. She would generally open the meal with the remark that Anaximander held the primary cause of all things to be the infinite, or that it was a favorite expression of Theophrastus that time was the most valuable thing a man could spend. When breakfast was announced, one of the covers concealed the mushrooms, which under my superintendence James had done his best to devil. A quiet day followed, devoted to sedentary recreation after the labors of the run. The period which I have tried to sketch above may be called the period of good fellowship. Whatever else love does for a woman, it makes her an actress. So we were merely excellent friends till James's eyes were opened. When that happened, he abruptly discarded good fellowship. I, on the other hand, played it the more vigorously. The situation was mine. Our day's run became the merest shadow of a formality. The office of head forester lapsed into an absolute sinecure. Love was with us triumphant, and no longer to be skirted round by me, fresh, electric, glorious, and James. We talked. We must have talked. We moved. Our limbs performed their ordinary daily movements. But a golden haze hangs over that second period, when, by the strongest effort of will, I can let my mind stand by those perfect moments, I seem to hear our voices, low and measured, and there are silences, fond in themselves, and yet more fondly interrupted by unspoken messages from our eyes. What we really said, what we actually did, where precisely we two went, I do not know. We were together, and the blur of love was about us, always the blur. It is not that memory cannot conjure up the scene again. It is not that the scene is clouded by the ill proportion of a dream. No, it is because the dream is brought to me by will and not by sleep. The blur recurs because the blur was there. A love vast as ours is penalized, as it were, by this blur, which is the hallmark of infinity. In mighty distances, whether from earth to heaven, whether from 52.45 Gerard to 137 Glasgow, there was always that awful, that disintegrating blur. A third period succeeded. I may call it the affectionately practical period. Instantly the blur vanishes. We were at our proper distance from the essence of things. And though infinity is something one yearns for passionately, one's normal condition has its meed of comfort. I remember once hearing a man in a government office say that the pleasantest moment of his annual holiday was when his train rolled back into Paddington Station, and he was a man, too, of a naturally lazy disposition. It was about the middle of this third period, during a mushroom-trapping ramble, that the idea occurred to us 
first to me, then, after reflection, to James, that mother ought to be informed how matters stood between us. We went into the house, hand in hand, and interviewed her. She was in the bow window, reading a translation of The Deipnosophists of Athenaeus. "'Good morning,' she said, looking at her watch. "'It is a little past our usual breakfast time, Margie, I think. "'We have been looking for mushrooms, mother.' "'Every investigation,' says Athenaeus, "'which is guided by principles of nature, "'fixes its ultimate aim entirely on gratifying the stomach. "'Have you found any mushrooms?' "'Heaps, Mrs. Goodwin,' said James. "'Mother,' I said, "'we want to tell you something.' "'The fact is, Mrs. Goodwin,' "'We are engaged.' "'My mother liked James. "'Margie,' she once said to me, "'there is good in Mr. Cloyster. "'He is not forever offering to pass me things.' "'Time had not caused her to modify this opinion. "'She received our news calmly, "'and inquired into James's means and prospects. "'James had forty pounds and some odd silver. "'I had nothing. "'The key note of my mother's contribution to our conference was, "'Wait.' "'You are both young,' she said. "'She then kissed me, smiled contemplatively at James, "'and resumed her book. "'When we were alone, "'My darling,' said James, "'we must wait. "'Tomorrow I catch the boat for Weymouth. "'I shall go straight to London. "'My first manuscript shall be in an editor's hands "'on Wednesday morning. "'I will go, but I will come back.' "'I put my arms round his neck. "'My love,' I said, "'I trust you. "'Go.' "'Always remember that I know you will succeed.' "'I kissed him. "'And when you have succeeded, come back.'" End of section 2